everyone, and welcome to the Saturn Vox podcast, where discussions of philosophy meet the liminal space we weave in dreams. This is your favorite skeptic and lover of high strangeness, Michaela Ann. On this week's episode, we have guest Joshua Adam Sharp, better known as Algol from the New Orleans-based black metal project Mahenet. Joshua is the founding master of Alambrados Oasis OTO, and currently serves on the Electoral College of the OTO for the United States. He is a crowned Olorisha and a Macumbero, as well as being one of the four owners of Botanica Macumba, which happens to be the on-site location this interview took place. Joshua shares with us his own wisdoms on dual faith practice and the challenges one faces as a magic practitioner in the era of modernity. We chat skepticism, some common misconceptions about Aleister Crowley, and discuss an ontology theory based in high strangeness called the phenomenon. How can we prove anything exists? Does it matter? How important is the role of community in one's magic practice? In what ways does clinging to westernized ideas of religion stop us from approaching more insight into cognition and the state of our reality? Do aliens exist? All this and more in today's episode of Saturn Vox. On a final note, due to recording this episode on-site at the Botanica, there is a little bit more background noise than usual. I do hope you will excuse some of that due to the engaging nature of the interview. The insights I received from this conversation were vast and great, and I expect it may have a similar effect on you. If you find this podcast interesting and want to show some support, consider checking out the Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Saturnbox. I can also be found on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Saturnbox. <laughs> uh, Joshua Adam Sharp, uh, run Botanica Macumba. Some people know me as Al Gaul from uh, Mehenet, so uh, doing music, uh, singing for that black metal group. And uh, I've been involved with things like the OTO and AA for 20 years. And uh, also, you know, I'm associated with uh, Kimbanda and uh, Ocha as well. So I've been doing Kimbanda a lot longer, but sort of my godfather, uh, felt like, you know, it might be good for me. We looked into it and it turns out sort of, uh, saved my life in a lot of ways. So, um, I'm very glad that I went down that particular road and, you know, continue that relationship with the house and whatnot. And they, they work really well together. They, they tend to, uh, you know, it's not a strange mixture considering there's a lot of Orisha religion in Brazil as well, surrounding, you know, Kimbanda, especially in houses that sort of mix it with Umbanda which has Orisha. It's just that my connection to the Orisha comes through the Cuban system because mm-hmm. that's what I have access to. So Okay. And just for people who may not know, can you like explain what an ATR is? I mean, these are like, uh, 
that's like a uh, how do you say uh, it's a common conversation like the the or term I guess you know some people see them more as like secret societies or like clans I mean depending on who you, you know you talk to we're talking about something like Ocha or sometimes in the more public called Santeria we're discussing West African uh, stuff coming out of Benin and you know, the city of Boyo and you know these places and then being forced into Cuba under Spanish colonial rule. And then Santeria or Ocha uh, develops, you know, in Havana and Matanzas, these areas. And I, I kind of ran into that originally. Uh, my interest was in Kimbanda, but when I met my uh, Tata Apokan or Jesse Hathaway, you know, it started with Kimbanda, it became really clear that perhaps I needed other agencies in my life to keep me from losing my mind. So, uh, <laughs> okay, I love that. Mostly for our conversation, one of the things we had discussed that would be fun to talk about would be, like, being involved in two different religions. And now it's, like, almost like you're involved in three, even though there are similarities and a lot of crossover between Ocha and Kimbanda. So Ocha, Kimbanda, and the OTO religion, are they more, like, okay with pantheism in which you can pick and choose or how is your cosmological worldview in the mix of all this? So I think you have this concept of like open religion versus say like dual faith. And, you know, we kind of become accustomed to this idea that if you are involved in some, you know, spiritual path or culture, that this is sort of a closed, that's it. That's what you do. That's who you are. And I think that's sort of a Western inheritance. I don't, I don't think that's as common when, you know, outside of that, you have a lot of, Cultures interacting and exchanging, and this is this dynamism has taken place for a long time. So, you know, deities are like incorporated into cultures through historical means, whether sometimes it's warfare, you know, sometimes it's just neighborliness, sometimes it's trade, whatever it is, these things appear and then they start, they seem like a completely normal part of the religion. You know, you, you see that with uh, a lot of discussions of, you know, the Olympic gods and whatnot. Uh, deities coming in from Scythia and, you know, places like that that are, you know, geographically distinct. So I think also that some some of these things are bond, bonded by history, you know, within a cosmology, if you will. So when we talk about things even further than that, I think it's more of like a springboard. Like for me, if I, if I relate it to how I got into some of this, you know, principally with something like the OTO, you're looking at the discovery of the true will or your destiny or your nature, like it's like sort of that kind of thing and how to best orient yourself to accomplish that, you know, that gnosis in things like the Ori in Orisha tradition, you know, the head. I, I wouldn't say they're equivalents, but I definitely think that there's a common, la- a common enough language that some of those concepts cross over in the conversation and they can be useful to one another or, you know, I mean, first, I tend to keep them distinct, like, when I work, right? However, in my own personal cosmology, I don't find a conflict. I do find places of tension, though, because within Arisha tradition, you, you, you know, community is an enormous part of what we do, a communal concept of self, even to some degree. And while each person has, like, an Ori or you know, uh, a divine destiny, maybe one that even transcends the given life. This is still mediated through, like, cultural ritual, through elder systems, through things like this. I think a lot of people, when they think of something like Thelema, they assume that it's this radically individualistic, 
uh, almost like sterner level egoism. I don't think that's true at all, actually. I think the mysteries of the OTO, while they are individualistic to some degree, a lot of what's going on in those initiatory groups is how self, other, how those kind of construct or balance between one another, like where boundaries are set, where actually there is no boundary, like the idea of a boundary there is false, you know, um, how do we socially mediate, like, how do we look at, say, individual restrictions as actually, like, say, for example, disciplines as something that isn't, isn't taking away from freedom, but is the foundation of it, mm-hmm. you know, that discipline may come internally, or it may be something that is expected by a community that you accept, you know, and you, you, you bring into yourself. And I think when we go to right behaviors with regards to that or expectations, like those are ultimately set up for the health of the person as, and, and the community. There's not a, there's not a war between those two things. They construct one another. In modern, like political conversation, this has become like such a battlefield because everyone thinks it's some kind of, you know, there's some kind of fundamental distinction between either you have free personal agency, it's kind of libertarian agency, or you're a communist or something. Like, there's just apparently no other option, I guess, right? And I, I really don't see it that way. I think personal agency is tied to the free agency of other individuals. I think these things have to be equilibrated. So when I look at the, the question of the cosmology, for me, while I wouldn't say I'm like inventing a whole scale new religion of, you know, where these three things come together and it's a new religion. No. For myself, the way that I construct, you know, my journey or whatever you want to call it, I think I began with this sense of self-discipline that led to questions of how the individual relates that personal will to the will of the community. Are they connected are they not connected and all these sorts of meditations and then later on became interested in ways of gaining agency which ultimately trained me that agency is more complicated than just individual agency it's not just a personal will or a whim or a desire and so it's very natural to me to step into a community-based system it's it's not there's not a conflict so i think it's like swami vivekananda in raja yoga gives this image of a river uh, as sort of like if you can imagine the world as a river and the individual is like a whirlpool in the river like they're still made of the river but you could from an outside perspective look at the motion of that whirlpool and describe it as a as a person as a unit but it takes in water it pushes out water it's never the same series of particles of water at any given moment right it's the pattern of that that's definable and is uh, there, but it spawns off other eddies and other whirlpools, and the whole time it's interconnected. And we see this in physical models, like in you know uh, chaos mathematics and whatnot. That's entirely how this is determined, you know. Um, so when I look at something like how, where Othello might say, "Well, are you subverting your will to these uh, these spirits or whatever?" And I would say that no, I am understanding that will as a part of a larger ecosystem and so for me it's a very natural fit like i am a part of an ecosystem you know i'm not abstracted out of nature and what is transcendent is still transcendent whatever that might be and we're still on the the quest for those uh, uh those things but 
I think each one of these traditions provides a unique tool uh, to understanding the world, community, myself, you know, and that having these distinct perspectives opens you up to a type of humility with the way that you look at the world rather than going out into the world and making demands of it and telling it it is a certain way before you've even discovered it. So I, I guess what I'm saying is I don't know the, the ultimate answer of reality, but, you know, I can go and share and communicate with cultures and cross-pollinate and come up with new possibilities for investigation. And I think that that kind of pluralism leads closer to the truth than approaching it with an absolute dogma, you know? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I actually probably would have been concerned if you had had, like, a hard set, you definitely believe it's this way (laughs) answer. Uh, Sure, sure. I mean, there are things that I think I would say, like, you know, I like to say, like, say, like, like I currently am working on this premise. Mm-hmm. So I might come with a model or an association where I'm like, from what I'm looking at here, I'm assuming these things for now. And, you know, that model might fall in the future and I have to be open to being wrong. Um, I mean, I don't want to have my head so open that my brain falls out. But like I simultaneously, you know, I'm not saying I'm exactly approaching it with a scientific method, but like. With the modeling system, just recognizing that with these these ways of looking at things, these stories, this is how we might approach yeah. doing this. And let's see, like, kind of where that goes, you know? Yeah, it's so. like an instrumentalist view. Like, you accept that the tools get the job done, but you're not, like, placing meaning onto the essence of what a hammer is. Yeah, and, I, you know, I also don't want to deny what people who do come from, say, a singular cultural outlook believe it's not for me to say well that's clearly not true because other things work i'm not even making that argument i'm simply saying that for me i don't see the conflict necessarily at least between certain things there are definitely closed traditions and closed cultures that that line of argumentation is unacceptable right so it's like sorry friend if you don't think this way then you're really not one of us and i think that's fair that's for them to say Obviously, I'm not seeking that. I'm not seeking that out. So, yeah. um, well, it sounds like what you're saying is you started with kind of Crowley's premise of do what thou will, but you're approaching it very much from the love under will. When you were talking about people sometimes misinterpreting Thelema, my thought immediately was to the adjustment card and how the adjustment card in Crowley's tarot is about meeting balance between your will and the will of the other and exacting right boundaries between you and others. And there's an idea embedded in that card because she is the consort of the fool who is like the closest to Keter that if we are truly in line with our true will, if we're truly receiving the Gnosis directly down from Keter, then we wouldn't want to do anything that would intentionally impose or like stop somebody from being able to act out their true will. So that kind of removes the, well, I want $1,000, so I'm going <laughs> to screw this guy over kind of mentality. Yeah. Um, and it does make way for like a universal community. But then it sounds like you're saying your drive for community was deeper than that. And so following your true will brought you into a community type tradition that still had your wanting us to 
focus on being most aligned with our own personal gnosis and the way that we're meant to behave as was given to us by the all being or whatever. Uh, and you also wanted the discipline, which I know that Kimbanda and Lakumi have. And so this was just your way of branching community and religion to a deeper degree. I think that's like one, that's definitely one avenue that I took with mm-hmm. one reason why I would look at it that way. I also think that there's just some stuff like in Western practices that are sort of, there, there, there's some holes in, in the practice that these other outlooks have spent a lot of time on and the a wisdom that's living tradition that's passed from person to person to person that's still going and something that frustrates me about a lot of western stuff is the constant reinventing the wheel and then creating like fake histories to justify that wheel being reinvented again i'm not saying there's not a validity to the model i'm just saying that like it can get taxing i guess um i mean that being said you look at people who were, you know, like I think it was Jake Stratton or somebody who was talking about how there are no experts in the, the occult in the West right now. Like everything is being sort of re um, investigated because just so much was not on the table for study for a long period of time. Yes. Like if you look at like the, the grimoire tradition as an example, in just in the last 30 years, there's been like an enormous amount of new scholarship and, you know, um, you know, filling in things that previously it seemed like individuals were filling in the unknown with what they already knew. And so there's just a huge gap there. And um, it's, it's interesting to to see everything that's coming out and being able to kind of put that into practice and uh, reconsider. And at the same time, we can ask ourselves, does that invalidate what people were doing before or does it, undercut our trust in what they say that they manage that's another question you know like i mean you can you can look at crowley's work and you can see what he didn't have access to to what we have today yeah and you can be like oh it's cute that you thought that but we actually have now found some texts hidden in a cave that have like disproven that and no, I don't I don't think that that means that what he experienced wasn't legitimate or that the magic that he was doing wasn't legitimate. Like one thing that I've learned is that it doesn't really matter how historically accurate your magic is or like your system is. What matters is like you know, how much faith and veneration is given to those communities by the people involved in them. The magic seems to work more the more people believe in a thing. So you think maybe it's almost like a psychic phenomenon or that the religious structure focuses or... So in other words, like you asked me about cosmology, but now we're getting into like a kind of the ontology of magic. Mm-hmm. Like, So say for example, because th- this kind of goes to your earlier question, right? Like you're like, well... How can everyone be right? And it's like, mm-hmm. well, there may be a couple models where everyone could be right in a certain sense, or at least everyone's belief could have an effect. Maybe they're not right about what they believe, but maybe their belief creates an effect. And that would certainly be true if there was some sort of like, I don't know, for lack of a better term, like mankind has a telepathic power 
or something, you know, like some X Files stuff. That would be cool. Uh, you know, well then, yeah, I mean, sure, it's like a tulpa or something like you know, if you begin to believe in a you know the the flying spaghetti monster as atheists like to go on about, then does it? eventually become, like, could you create flying spaghetti monster magic? I mean, is that not the premise of chaos magic? It is its premise. And I know chaos magicians who work with fictional entities and they get shit done, so it really does beg the question. But you could, see, here's the issue, like, and this is like, okay, this is true of modeling generally, like, say, for example, I guess, again, there's a kind of level in which you just don't know, you know, so, because you could do a call to, you know, I don't know, some Lovecraftian entity would get crazy, crazy results uh, to, to some degree. You still don't know whether it was the entity, the literal entity, the same entity that, say, Lovecraft was writing about, or something that's just responded in the name because you're leaving it cupcakes as an offering. Or, you know, it would be, it, it's hard to determine what it is that's really going on there. Yeah. Um, I'm, and I'm not saying nothing's going on there or that something definitely is. I'm just saying that I think it's still hard for us to determine what's behind that. And we only figure that out. Someone who's, I was thinking about this the other day. It's like, how do you know the spirit is the spirit? And I think it's like, if it acts consistently as if it has a certain personality, and that's to some degree predictable, or you would even have, you know, you would have things that would falsify that. Like you have things that would say, like, I don't know, this is not acting like this. Check your procedure. We have to have some sort of litmus for, for why we assume uh, the things we're calling are the things that are appearing. And in a lot of traditions, they have, exa- they have techniques for that, right? They have things they do to ensure that it's that spirit speaking and none other. Because that's such a concern, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Any ritual you do probably, to some degree, gets something's attention. Yeah. And everyone has a different little model of what that is, right? Like, what's happening? If you're a fundamentalist Christian, every single time it's demons or whatever. You know what I mean? Like, yes. oh, that's just Satan. Come yes. on. We knew that was Satan. We told you it was Satan. <laughs> so, sure, you know, you, you did this thing, but that was just the devil. You can call it, you know, Catholic Mary if you want. That's just Satan. <laughs> um, I don't know. No, yeah, I mean, that was... Um... Helena Blavonsky's whole issue with spiritism or the spiritism movement at the time is she wasn't arguing that these people weren't contacting something. Her argument was that they were likely contacting trickster spirits and not actually people's dead. Yeah. Um, I think it's a real concern. Yeah, so do I. And I wouldn't say I'm, like, wholly skeptical of mediumship, but I like to see specific things from a medium before I'm like, okay, that's actually dead that you're talking to. Well, I think this, again, comes down to there's a level of trust that has to develop between you and any type, whether it's a class of magic that you're working, whether it's religion that you have faith in, whether it's a group of people you want to associate with, uh, trust is like a fundamental foundation and that gets developed through practice. So like some of these things are just abstract philosophical issues that we may or may not be able to solve. But the issue of trust is separate. So for example, initially, why was I interested in say Alistair Crowley? Was it because of his story? No. Was it because of the book of law? Not really. I was more interested in his biography of like what kind of person produced 
like who who told this story? And this isn't necessarily an argument from authority, but like maybe I had some ideas of what I would imagine the life of a magician would look like. And I know a lot of the criticism of him is like, well, anyone could have had that life if they were like a rich, uh, you know, trust fund kid. But there were plenty of rich trust fund kids that don't have that life. Yeah, you have to be rich and want it at the same time. Right. And cho- choose to make some pretty strange decisions with your life. Yeah. You know, and why Why might you do that? Well, you know, maybe you're doing that because you're under the a certain type of influence. It doesn't even necessarily mean that that individual's story pans out to be exactly as true as they thought it was. But it, it may mean that, like, you have reason to believe that it's worth the time to read it and to look into it and maybe pick up a couple rituals and give it a shot and then start to make more determinations from there. That's kind of how I went about it, right? I was like, this is very interesting. Let's, let's go with this and see what happens. And sure shit, like, lots of very weird things happen, right? Still left with the question, are they things I should be interacting with or are they what they say they are i think only experience over time develops that and this is true with other things like i can be like wow this looks like a really healthy culture this community is very healthy these people all seem very you know wise intelligent or man do they know a lot about plants or you know whatever so you might go like i'm going to talk to this these these folks about this and you become convinced of the veracity of what they're teaching by virtue of what is happening, you know? Mm-hmm. In the case of, say, Ocha or Kimbanda, I can unequivocally say I've been impressed uh, with what has happened in those communities and with, you know, the insights and the character development and just the manifest changes that happen in people's lives. So if at the end of the day that all just falls on to methods that in a perfectly materialistic world we delude ourselves to living better, then there are worse fates, you know? Yeah, I agree with I that. don't think that. I, I tend to be very, in my personal models, very literalist with what I'm doing. I think these things exist. I think these powers are real. I don't think it's just our psychic capabilities. I think there's, I think there are things outside of us, but that's a model I'm committed to right now. Sure. I don't think that those two things are mutually exclusive. I don't either. I feel like, okay, so for example, I wholly believe that Crowley achieved contact with something. Right. I wholly believe that. I. It's hard to look at the body of his work and his life experiences and believe that he's just making it all up. Right. He wasn't. He was having these experiences. I personally think Crowley's mistake was believing that his experience was the totality of how one can experience. And now I'm kind of like getting into what some might call like pop science, I guess. But, you know, I believe in the phenomena. And I believe that the phenomena, even though I got this idea from the Mothman prophecy... Yeah, it's it's in a pretty okay book. But it interacts with us as we... You know, however, we have the myths to construct in our Mm -hmm. own language body because the myths we tell ourselves and the metaphors we use really structure the way that we utilize language and what we interpret our reality to be. Mm -hmm. And so whatever your mythos narrative that you believe in most in your head is how the phenomena is going to present itself. So in that way, to me, they are interconnected like Mm. my psychological disposition not like my mental health like not my emotional health yeah but 
how I perceive the reality of the world and the kind of way that I structure my own cosmos does influence the way that the phenomena will reveal itself to me. So I think that's fast. I'm down with that conversation for sure. I, I know it's, it's, it's probably at this point taboo in most of these occult circles because, and this is something that I've suffered from most of my occult career, wanting nothing to do with conversations of the phenomena because it's, it gets tied into UFO cult stuff and all that. However, I think anyone who's been paying attention to developments, especially in the last five years, it's becoming increasingly hard to not say that very serious people who have a lot of power in the world really believe that's going on, that these things are possible, and that they are scientifically demonstrable. Not just with some of this stranger stuff, like, you know, the possibility of, you know, otherworldly beings or whatever, but with just human potentiality, like the human potential movement, things like that. I mean, this is something like, I guess I'll say, like, I'm actually pretty active on on Twitter, but I'm almost like um, shy about talking about publicly too much. But I, I know a lot and have been communicating with people who are kind of involved in that stuff. Like, I, like I met a, a remote viewer one time at, while working in, at X in, uh, <laughs> in the French Quarter. We both worked there. Yeah. Yeah. But, um... <laughs> The, but I did meet a lot of interesting characters there for sure. Because we're right in the part, French Quarter, people come and going. This gentleman uh, comes in for a remote viewing conference, and we talk. And I think I was like, at that time, I was I, was, I really wanted them to get in books that I would enjoy more because uh, I, I wasn't I wasn't into the selection. But I made sure that they got stuff like Stephen Skinner and, and you know Kent and others, uh, Peterson and whatnot. Yeah. You know, and the grimoire stuff. At, at least that, that I had knowledge on that I was really excited had just been coming out available in editions and whatnot. And this gentleman came in and we started talking about that. And at the time, uh, I got to say, I was very skeptical of remote viewing, but I was open, ironically, to work like Libre E and Libre O, which is essentially the same thing. I mean, not it, it's close enough to some of that technology that I shouldn't have been so skeptical. It's just it was in a language that I just couldn't take seriously at the time. Sure. Now. It's ironic because it's just like this year you have the CIA tweeting that they defended, you know, Project Stargate and Girl Flame and all of those saying that we demonstrated above chance hits. And now you have members of this is today. I can't I can't remember. I was just looking at this on Twitter. It was like going on about how there were four remote viewers that they considered to have 95% accuracy or better, and one of them with near-perfect accuracy. It's just that they couldn't militarize it. Like, in other words, like it just you couldn't take 100 people and easily turn them into weaponizable spies, but that it demonstrated a capability that says something about the reality we're living in. So looking at that, you know, when you have people who are involved in, like, you know, defense agencies and, you know, whatnot, you you have to take it a little... I mean, there's millions of dollars being poured into this. And it's not like the Men Who Stare at Goats stupid movie that didn't really take the subject seriously. When you look at people who have taken the subject seriously, it, it does open up questions of, you know, what it is we're really doing here. And, I mean, that's a rabbit hole you have to be careful going down because it's full of disinformation. Yeah. It's full of intentional information warfare. Who knows what we're doing there, right? Like maybe we're just trying to freak the Soviets out. But 
You talked about the phenomenon and increasingly the occult and those circles are intermingling. I kind of wish they'd reach out to folks like us and just give us a go on some of these experiments. So that's my pitch. If you're out there to uh, Lou Elizondo and others, they should uh, yeah, should get some too. sorcerers on Skinwalker Ranch to uh, see what we can do. <laughs> that would be so exciting. No, yeah, it's funny. I've been a little bit in both circles on and off, and I kind of continuously do have the same sort of experience that you were talking about where I'll get super into it, but then I'll be like, ah, but your language is like very weirdly right wing. Mm -hmm. But I wonder if that's a part of the misinformation push is, you know, they always want whoever is they, like people in power always want whoever has gnosis to not be connected to other people with gnosis so that they can't combine the gnosis together to create, you know, like alchemically combine something new and greater. Yep. Uh, the more that they can make both sides of those spectrums feel like they can't trust the other, right. then, you know, then the people with power are the only ones who have put the two together and therefore have more power. Sure. And I do truly believe that, but, and I'll take, I'll take slack for that if people want to give me slack for it, but. Why would anyone give you slack for that? You just said, like, for me saying I believe in the phenomenon might. Yeah, I see what you're saying. Okay, yeah. I understand. Yeah, yeah, I think some, well, some people would, I, but also I would challenge those individuals whether they've really looked into what people mean by that outside of, I mean, it's one thing to read, like, the Mothman prophecies or, like, Whitley Street. Which is a little silly, like I totally. was, it's a little, really good insights, a bit silly. It's only silly because there's an assumption that there are certain types of experiences that are taboo and there are others because they're tied into religious experiences that have gravity, right? It's almost aesthetic. It's an aesthetic choice. Like, because I don't have any more, like, proof for the Mothman than somebody, I think, has for Moses dividing the Red Sea. You know, like, yeah. these are on faith like to a certain degree of somebody else's story and the fact that I think partially when you look at say people's acceptance of the Bible or the Old Testament, whatever, like cultural impact. Because it is such a cultural impact, you go, well, something right, something had to have happened. If the Mothman began to have that kind of cultural impact, it would gain traction and leave taboo. It's a popularity contest to a certain degree. Because neither of these things are necessarily scientific arguments. Sure. Right? Yeah. Like, uh, and as modernists, you sort of have this problem of, and I think this is a huge part of what Crowley wanted to do, is he's, he did not want the overwhelming weight of faith to overrun spirituality. He felt that, like, really, we could apply a scientific method to human, you know, spiritual experiences to catalog and to remove some of the superstition or even just to deal with confirmation bias and these sorts of things. Sure. That's his argument. Whether he applied that to himself or not is a different question. He's a hard figure because there's him in a philosophical mood and then there's him as a prophet, right? Sure. Who's like, I'm telling you, you yeah. know, you can argue with me, but you can't argue with Ivos, right? And you know, it's and hard like, to give a, an account of a prophetic vision right. without being like, and the angel said... You know, no, 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 absolutely. Well, I the, for for Crowley, he that's why he has the, the class system, right? Like class A, B, C, D texts. So when he, when he's talking about like class A texts, he's like these represent a wisdom beyond human. So none of us get to argue with it. We cannot accept it. Can't argue with it. Whatever you can take that as you. Where he goes in with like class B texts and things, these are like you know 
uh, texts that are, are intellectual in nature that are for arguing about, right? Like these are philosophical texts or whatever. You know, you have official rituals. So I think he tried to create like a, here's me in my prophetic mode. This is an essay, you know, so on and so forth. And that's a step in a direction that I think is positive when it comes to personal production of your material. Oh, yeah. I, I think, I wish more magicians would say, hey, I did an evocation the other night of, you know, Belial or whatever. I suspect it was actually Belial. <laughs> and um, here's my vision, you know, and this is what Belial said. You can tell me it wasn't Belial, but you can't say that's not what the thing that I thought Belial was said. Here it is. Judge it for that. Separate from what do I personally think the, how many angels dance on a pinhead? And then now it comes down to, well, I've read, you know, Iamblichus and I've read, you know, and you start making these like deductions. And, you know, at that point, you should have an open enough mind that you're ready to be challenged on that kind of conversation because clearly it's a construction. So I think what we get from Crowley is sort of a, a positive emotion in, in, in that direction. Somebody who's a fundamentalist with Crowley's thinking might not be capable of doing that. Even if he argued for it, I think that that's still, that we still have a danger in that world of fundamentalism. And, you know, we just have to keep challenging it from a rational perspective. I mean, I, I actually, I have a whole bunch of stuff I could say about, you know, the reception of the law for, for Crowley that, you know, any philosopher would have to, you know, it leaves a lot to question and to argue about. I mean, you could say, I believe he talked to Ivos, but Ivos could be a sylph. I mean, it was what he was conjuring at the time. Yeah. You know, using the bornless ritual, you're like, well, now we know more about where those rituals come from, what were their function, how might that have affected? Is it, you, you know, he wasn't in a standard magical temple, we're sitting here in a great pyramid. Yeah. You know, what is that, how would that affect the magic? If it did, you know, uh, was it the, the, the fucking ghost of a dead pharaoh, you know? What, were the what was the methodology? It seemed an awful lot like the spiritism that him and Blavatsky were not so friendly yeah. with, right? I mean, you yeah. had Rose receiving like a typical person at a seance yeah. and this magician saying the prayers like the person who might say the prayers at a, a spiritismo, you know, a, a, a session. So I can't fault people for being critical, you know, of those things. And yet, in certain circles, that doesn't have the taboo that what you're talking about here, let's say the phenomenon, huge taboo. Um, I'm glad to see some of those walls falling down and then just analyzing these things on their own merits rather than the social implications of what the words sound like. Sure, yeah. I mean, for me, the, the reason why I tend to default to that is because from a philosophical perspective, I know that I cannot prove any religion to be correct as an end-all, be-all system. Like I said, I believe that there are paths that we are meant to take, but there are many paths, you know, and the one that I'm meant to take is only directed by whatever was implanted in my soul being via the birth chart, via my, you know, inception into this world. And that makes it very hard for me to, like, initiate into anything. I don't want to initiate into the OTO, even though I love a lot of Crowley's teachings, not because I don't like Crowley as a person. I, that has nothing to do with his teachings. The reason why I don't want to is because I don't work with the Egyptian pantheon. Like, I don't believe in his horcha, whatever. And it's not that I disbelieve in it. I just am like, I don't know what you are, actually. I can't actually ontologically categorize you. And then that is why, for me, it feels safer to talk about the phenomena, because the phenomena 
is more agnostic in term, where it's saying, I still accept all of these spirits and all of these entities as existing, but maybe they exist on a universal level in a different way than how my puny human brain perceives them. Well, I would, I would respond to that just with the idea that the name of the, say, like, Huerpacrat or whatever in Crowley's yeah. system, while it might follow a sort of Egyptian reference, we don't know that, that it is that thing. And I'm not sure that Crowley himself thinks that literally about it. For example, you have, like, Nuit, and, which is, like, the French word for night. You know, it's not an Egyptian deity name. Nu, or Nut, maybe. And I think that if, let's say, just for the sake of conversation, we credit that with a reality. The choice of naming oneself Nuit rather than the traditional Nut may very well be just to reference the fact that something new is happening, a new perspective that does not need to be looked at as a 4,000-year-old entity as it was 4,000 years ago, but we have now moved towards a conception where we're going to talk about some new things. And I think for Crowley, a lot, while there's a reference to the past, and there may even be a continuity with it, the story has moved forward. That's a really important part of what he's trying to get people into. So... I, I wouldn't assume that you're necessarily some sort of comedic magician, you know, ipso facto, because you're involved in uh, Thelema. Like, you, I, I don't think you necessarily have to be a comedic magician. And, you know, the, to some of our earlier points to bring it back, what type of spiritual systems and magic you do find yourself involved in is unique to the will of the individual. And they may follow something like the OTO, or the AA, or maybe just independent, you know. Those aren't the only two options, right? There's, you know, the Typhonian order. You have, I mean, God, it goes on, right? Um, just yourself. Just yourself in your own experiments. You may choose to, you know, do some of the rituals that uh, Crowley had. You might not. But um, you may do what I've done and go into a completely uh, different direction because I feel that it's what's best for me. And so the, I, I guess that's what I would respond to that, that, uh, that component of the literalism with regards to the Egyptian deities. But with initiation, too, I think, you know, initiation's a beginning. It's like an option. It's like a door. Like, you have to still do everything that makes initiation powerful. You know, I think it sets you up with, in some in some cases, certain medicines or rebalances or, or it gives you a certain type of energy to move in a direction. But it's ultimately, for me, I look at initiation as a choice and a task and a challenge, you know, to step forward in your development often it's a, again you can't separate it from the communal component of it so i think there's a sense that you're also saying you have something to learn from other people in a formal setting and so i, I would argue for initiation as uh, a net positive even for people that are more comfortable with arguments like the phenomenon i don't just mean initiation in something like OTO. i mean whether i'm talking about ocha or kimbanda like these are initiations into unique ways of equilibrating human beings and human society. And they have, you know, depending on what you think about the cultures and the people involved, unique wisdom that only they can give you in those ways that has been going on for a time. I also think there's a benefit to not reinventing the wheel for yourself 
with every succeeding incarnation, for lack of a better term. Like, there's just so much information in something like Ocha that you could not come up with on your own. Because it literally took generation after generation of experiment and of interactions. It's, it's, it's the legacy of a thousand deaths, you know? And so, really millions. And so I think there's an, an advantage there. It, you are not, I think, stripped of the independence of your thought process towards the ultimate reality. Involvement in those things does not rob you of stepping out at a given moment and going, but is this all the phenomena? I don't know. Like, I don't think any of my initiations have ever taken that for me. And I wouldn't be involved in them if I don't think they did. So. Okay, so my understanding now is that I might be stuck in a mindset that was probably given to me through my Catholic upbringing. And that if I don't know you and see you and accept you as the one true God, like, I shouldn't be involved. But that's a that's a misinterpretation of what's going I'm on. I'm rejecting that. Yeah. yeah. And I would say, like, for, you know, I'm not saying there are not challenges to dual faith. There are. There are places where you're like, these two peoples do not agree on the wisdom of this type of behavior. And in the end of the day, you're responsible for how you solve that. That does happen. But what I am saying is at the same time, in all three of the groups that I'm discussing right now, none of them thus far have told me that I am in somehow living in bad faith by doing this. And I think I've gotten a, an enormous amount of support. Now, that being said, you know, I don't wear my Sunday best to the butcher's house and, you know, I don't show up to church in my, well, <laughs> I was about to say, I don't show up to church in my butcher's outfit, but that wouldn't be true in some cases. Um, but more or less, like, I, <laughs> I, uh, I try to keep in the lane that I'm working with so that I have coherency with regards to the wisdom of that practice, whatever it might be. So there's a compartmentalization that I'm talking about between them that I don't want to put mustard in with my, you know, peanut butter and jelly. I'm not doing that. Um, and I, I, I'm not saying that there aren't ways in which maybe there's advancements possible. I'm just saying like th there needs to be caution with that kind of admixture, but equilibrating between them and having a really unique personal outlook, totally possible. I think I could even draw for you a kind of worldview, like a literal worldview of where these all fit for me. Mm -hmm. I don't put that out publicly because I don't want that to be an influence. And I think it would be, uh, that would be a taboo for me, but I do have one. Do I, I have a consistent way in which I think these things all work and, you know, who gets in where they fit in and all that, where that's possible. That's very possible. I think. So it's very important then for us to like linguistically distinguish between syncretism, which you're not doing, right. and dual faith practice. A hundred percent. Actually, that's if I could say one thing is like I am absolutely not saying that I I am. Uh, there is a difference between dual faith and syncretism. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And um, also, I'm not saying that syncretism doesn't occasionally happen. A healthy syncretism comes about when both cultures go, you know what? We agree. This is essentially that. Both of us agree with that. And so maybe moving forward, if we're partnering as cultures, we'll have a joint right where we do these things. You know, there are plenty of examples of that happening, you know, um, where you get these sort of, I don't want to call them synthetic faiths, but, you know, faiths that have developed by the intermingling of multiple cultures. And now they have a new meta culture between them. And after many generations, you get a complicated pantheon of things that ultimately arrive from different cities in a nation, different 
you know, countries. So, yeah. I think in a new global world, this is an inevitable development because we're going to be running into one another, whether it's religious, people of religious faith, whether it's people of magical culture, wrestling with modernity and versus tradition, things like that. These are questions that are absolutely on the table. We don't have a choice not to come up with some sense of. And for me, and I'm glad you brought it up, these are all a part of an overarching phenomenon of the human spiritual experience. Yeah, I love that you said that syncretism works when both cultures agree. I'm reading a book right now. It's called Longing for Darkness. And the woman basically like went to Tibet and got super into the Tibetan uh, female Buddha, Tara, and had this experience when she was looking at the statue of the t- Black Tara, thinking like, this reminds me of the Black Madonna. And so she starts going to all these, like, really high-ranking monks, like Rinpoches and Lamas and people, and asking them if there's any connection between the Black Madonna and Tara. And they keep just saying, like, yeah, vaguely. They don't use this language, but they're basically like, yeah, it's the same current, it's the same thing. And then she goes to Switzerland and and goes to the monastery of one of the Black Madonnas there and is reading people drop, you know, other monks, like Catholic monks who have drawn similar comparisons. And so in her book, she's kind of trying to present to you that it is okay to synchronize these two entities. And that was kind of sending me down this weird spiral about what is okay and what isn't okay in syncretism because like for example when i first started studying uh atrs one of the very first thing i learned is like a legwa is not papa legba right right but there are similarities like there is a similar archetype but they're not the same spirit if you call one you're not going to get the other right and I don't know. So it, it's been bringing up this like back and forth between how far we can go with synchronism before it becomes like a misnaming of the spirit. I think that's be- us being uh, precise in your language. This is kind of one of the reasons why I chose a kind of uh, compartmentalization mm-hmm. because I want to be precise in that language when I can. So so you talked about Alegua and Papa Legba and you can say, okay, why would I even want to syncretize these? And the init- you, you look at your own desires for why would you want to do that? And the desire might be because you see a similar function and the negative desire, I'll call it, or the, is to create a meta theory between things that you think are similar and you're trying to become parsimonious. You're trying to like pare down how many things you have to know. So you're just like, ah, Papa Legba, Legba, same thing. But you're losing something when you do that because they come from a unique points of departure, right? So you're talking about two distinct, although neighboring cultures who have a power with a similar function, but it has its own history. Mm -hmm. So, for example, imagine, this may or may not speak to this process, but let's just imagine in a, a small geographic area, you have the same divinity. Let's say it was the same divinity, and it touches down two separate points a couple hundred miles away from one another. And it develops a relationship with that geography and the people of that geography. Well, they're going to have unique concerns. They're going to have unique experiences. They may even war with one another. And ultimately, that history, the priests and priestesses that participate in it, who become one with the God when they die or 
whatever begin to inform the consciousness of that same fundamental power, but the history changes it such that it develops unique personalities um, as far as relationship to other people. You would lose all of that if you just plop them together, you yeah. know? So there's like a historical continuity that matters, I think, with deity, um, with, with, with spirits and whatnot. And even, I think, I, I think it was in the discovery of witchcraft where they're interviewing these witches. But there's this, there's this concept that like, you might have the abstract spirit named, you know, I, you know, we were talking about Belial earlier. Let's say Belial again. Belial's getting a lot of workout in this room today. But uh, so Belial um, could be known to two separate witches, and there is a kind of marriage between the personality of the witch and this abstract eternal entity. That can be neither contained nor... I mean, otherwise, how do you have one bound in a, someone's brazen vessel somewhere and not... And yet still moving around for someone else. There's something that sort of goes beyond the, the, the spirit as object, right? And so instead, you end up having a merger between... Or a child that you might still call it Belial, but it's a child between a particular conjurer or witch or whatever you want to call them and this other thing. And it produces a third thing that's unique in that. Now, if we extend that through generation after generation, two witches, same power, many different cultures, and you're going to end up with a, a family of spirits that don't look like the other family exactly, even if they share something fundamental. And I think in a lot of cases, that's what we're dealing with. And it's why we have to be like so careful with the way that we, we, we do these things, because something could happen in history where suddenly the thing just hates guava. Or, you know, whatever. Like, it just, don't get me near the guava. Yeah. And the other one loves guava. Same spirit, doesn't like it. You know, something happened to them with guava in the other world, and now we don't fuck with guava. That would inform you on a practical level when dealing with this thing. And again, it's history. So, that'd yeah. be my pitch on that. No, I love that perspective. And that's actually a lot of what I was realizing as I was contemplating this question from the perspective of Kabbalah, Jewish Kabbalah versus like, I guess, Golden Dawn era Kabbalah, right. especially the syncretizing the planets over mm. the Sephira, yeah. because it like, there are just so many ways in which it does work and it yeah. does help you actually contemplate both. But then there are these like nuanced differences that right. if you weren't studying each tradition individually, you wouldn't realize like there's actually a lot more to Binah than just their Saturnian qualities. Yeah. And there's a lot of things about Saturn that have nothing to do with Binah. But it's important to note that even I think for the Golden Dawn and for people like Crowley and whatnot, they don't make those as equivalents. That's how people after them started treating it. Because people would go to something like Sefer Sephiroth or, uh, you know, 777 or whatever and read the tables to quickly construct a, a, a ritual, but didn't read any of the essays or the descriptions. I mean, as an example, is, a, is, is an apple red? Is it given to Mars and, you know, Gabura and all that because of its redness? Or is it given to Venus for its appleness and its sweetness? Like, these distinctions are made in that book, but no one took the time to, like, go through the very wordy exercises in the back. And there's not one-to-one -one correspondences here. These are correlations, yes. right? So you're like, oh, this correlates in as much as 
but not in as much as right. I always give people the example. It's like, well, in even in you know older Kabbalistic systems, are we talking about Lurianic Kabbalah? Are we talking about Cordova? Are we and the, you know we, you know who are we talking about? Because we have to specify. They also may not have identical associations because I I don't think that those with example from the Tree of Life were intended to be literal images of reality. They're maps of the divine based in scripture that like help us understand mysteries hidden in those things. Right. Yeah. Well, it's a metaphor. Yeah. It's a, it's, it's a visual way for us to diagram, you know, I mean, we talk about planetary associations. We already have stuff like that in the Sefer, in the Sefer Yetzirah, right? Like the dimensions and like the ways in which the stars relate to the, um, I think it's Aria Kaplan's version of it that has all that stuff in it. Yeah. Yeah, that's um that's a really good point actually because I myself fall into that trap of sometimes really harping on people like Crowley and Rigardi for lessening the substance of Kabbalah. But I think you're right that it wasn't really them. It was other people misinterpreting things and using only their text as their source for both Kabbalah and astrology. Right. And then that, you know, digresses over the years until I'm not going to like name names because I don't want to shame anybody. But I was reading a book on how to read tarot recently, and it literally said that all of the the Sephiroth can be one to one reduced to the planet. And I wanted to just throw the book out my window. (laughs) Yeah, I wouldn't be a fan of that. I, I With all the I don't know, some of this is difficult because I think it's just like people are using similar language but they mean different things. Mm-hmm. So certainly if you're talking about Jewish Kabbalah, you're talking about something distinct from when we're talking about Hermetic Kabbalah mm-hmm. or the Kabbalah of the Golden Dawn and Aleister Crowley, especially when we're talking about Aleister Crowley, because he is wholesale appropriating it for his own ends <laughs> and says as much. Yes. Because he, again, as a modernist, is not taking He's, he doesn't believe in the direct literacy of these things, but he does believe that they have a spiritual utility, but wants to step out of individual cultural trappings. And it's, I think a lot, in fact, I think, and maybe I'm giving him too much credit, I don't know. I think a lot of his apparent racism towards cultures is based in the desire to tear apart uh, cultural supremacy or he says this a lot when he talks about yoga, where he's like, there's nothing mystical about it. And what he's trying to get at is that, like, people exoticize foreign cultures they don't understand, and they, they treat them like, you know, the the magical fortune teller, and then just, like, they're not even a human being anymore. They just become, to you, your personal magical fortune teller. And he's like, cut that shit out. Everybody has superstitions. Everybody has wisdom mixed with a bunch of bullshit they learn from this, this, that, and the other thing. He wants to get down to the essentials and ultimately strip it of, if anything, he's like the, the, the appropriator par excellence because like he really is admittedly wanting to strip it of its, of its cultural attachments because that's his philosophy when it comes to this. He doesn't do it entirely, I think, because believing himself to be in a line of prophets, there is some legitimacy to the past. It's just, I think what he's trying to say is that like, what I'm supposing he's saying is, there's a reality to some of these things, but the, when you're in the thick of it, you probably don't have the best perspective because you're in the thick of it. Sure. So he's looking at it like when we look back at stuff, I think he thinks he has a better perspective. Now, 
there are, I'm well aware there are other uh, arguments for the exact opposite we could make, but. I'm just thinking, yeah. like, what line, be, like, again, I think I'm surprised to hear that there's so much pushback from the occult community on words like the phenomena simply because, like, Crowley's lineage of prophets, like, included Helena Blavonsky. Mm-hmm. And there was this idea that everybody would ascend to some sort of secret chiefs in another dimension where Jesus, Buddha, you know, Muhammad and Helena Blavonsky and maybe even Rasputin are all like on a spaceship (laughs) in all white watching us in another dimension where, you know, beyond time. There's like the I am cult, I think, did that exactly. Was offshoot of, of of Blavatsky and them. So is this not the same thing as? Well, so why? So we ask like, why are? So you know, what I like to go is like, well, why does someone not like that? Rather than like, let me defend this. It's like, well, what might they not like about it? And so there are a couple. If you again looking historically, we can go. All right, there are a couple of arguments happening within the occult that have kind of gone on over time, right? And people have solidified their positions as to what they want to align to. One of those that's really common on the internet is the the psychological versus the literal, right? Like, so there are people who want to be like, I'm a fucking sorcerer. I work with spirits. They're real. Don't tell me they're not real. Stop talking about fucking Carl Jung. Like, it's not an archetype. It's a spirit. It's a deity. It's an entity. And there are people who are like, no, like, these are, these are cultural phenomenon that we are mediating through our own minds, the history of the human development. And, you know, this becomes a very tense place of battle, right? So when we start talking about things like the phenomenon, it might smell like one breed or another to people, and that immediately elicits a reaction. That's one, one place of battle. The other is a more philosophical battle between this kind, or another philosophical battle, battle rather, between... Um, like the, the the desire to make a meta theory versus just maintaining the uncomfortableness of a pluralism. So, like for example, theosophy wants to give you a worldview of how all religions are kind of true in their own way, but they ultimately sum up to this one great mechanism. And now I'm going to tell you that mechanism. Here's the mechanism. And then what you've kind of done is created a new tradition. Not a, you haven't accepted the pluralism. You've explained it with your own new religion. You know. Crowley's, I think, guilty of that, and ultimately it comes down to, like, do you accept meta-theories? Are you searching for meta-theories? Or are you comfortable uh, just saying, so-and-so says this? If you're in this tradition, they believe this, they believe this over here, you know, sometimes they talk, you know. Those are, uh, those are just like a couple battles that I think when we talk about the phenomenon that are involved in that. All religions are the manifestation of some transcendental property of the universe we have yet to discover, you're offering a meta theory for all religion, and you're thereby almost implicitly rejecting some other models. Yeah. So people are getting hung up about why are you rejecting my model? Jesus came for your sins. What the fuck are you talking about? Of course he came to save you, Jesus. You know. Um, so there, I, I mean, I guess. Well, I just you know making jokes about Jesus here. Like there are just as many sorceress perspectives that would take exception to that, right? Like. Yeah. Um. No, yeah, that's a good point. I always forget that people just don't like to be wrong. 
or be yeah. reminded that they might be wrong. Yeah. And I'm always like, I just said an innocent truth. <laughs> I didn't mean to make you upset, yeah. but um, I have to be more comfortable maybe saying controversial things, I think. No, no, you're, I don't even think you're saying anything controversial. You're just talking about possibilities. Yeah. I like the phenomenon just for the conversation of that you can talk about it and say, I don't know. Yeah. You're just like, look, I have a whole lot of I don't know here. We're calling it the phenomenon because we don't know what else the hell to call about it. Crowley did that with, as an example again, the Holy Guardian Angel. It's like, picked a crazy term, but in the Equinox discusses all the other terms that possibly could have been used. And there are a lot of them, like the, yeah. you know, the higher self, the genius, the, you know, you go on and on and on. The daemon. The daemon. <laughs> and then ultimately it's like, I'm going to take the one that's the most superstitious so that no one literalizes what I'm saying. Right? Okay. That's what he says, you know, more or less, paraphrasing, but like, because he didn't necessarily intend it to be taken literally. And yet, to this very day, everyone is arguing over whether we should be doing exact by the book, Sacred Magic or Brahma and the Mage, or whether, like, it's, should, we should do, like, Lieber 8 out of the Vision and the Voice. I read that Scarlet imprint book on the Holy Guardian Angel, mm. and that was a really funny insight into this exact what you're talking about, because it was an anthology of different yeah. essays by different people who believe that they have achieved the, you know, K and C. Yeah. And that's knowledge and conversation for people who, who aren't aware. But yeah, and the, so one guy was like, if you're not doing it by the Abermelon, you know, you're just lazy and don't have discipline and you're not really talking to the HDA. And this other guy was like, literally, I just would like smoke some weed and like sit down and go into my astral temple. And I only had to say the Bornless right like seven times and it worked, you know, in these drastically different right. opinions on it. The HGA, from my understanding, is similar to the concept of the Prince and Tifereth in Kabbalah, which is similar to the higher self. Like, that's more of a Jungian term, but it's more just like the me that extends outside of this astral body. And so, again, it's similar to what I was saying about Crowley and I was, and that's even though it was a vision, right. it was still a UPG, which I think most people want to say if it happens in the material, if I see it materialize, mm. it's not UPG, like this is real, it's right in front of me. And that's like what distinguishes people who say they have prophetic visions or, you know, have achieved K and C with their HDA Versus people who are just, like, seeing things in meditation or having intuitions about things. Um, it's like, oh, that's just your UPG versus... I mean, I wouldn't denigrate UPG. I think it's perfectly legitimate. I would just say it's... Like, if you're sitting there and, like, 16 people... It's like the, 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 the Fatima thing, you know? If suddenly a group of a thousand some odd people see, like, your bright angel shining over a hill... Even if you're the only one doing the evocation, uh, we're going to go ahead and skip the calling that UPG. But if it's just you, no matter how intense it is, it's still just you. You know, at least... It, I, I'm not saying there's not a categorical difference between something appearing in a room and like you just kind of meditating and imagining it, but they're not categorically distinct, right? Mm -hmm. They're still happening in your mind. And, and in as much as you know there's an objectivity to it comes through other methods. This is why this entire subject must be or is so laughable to materialists or sort of atheists who, who approach this because we're just sitting here arguing about what's the best story to tell about our imaginary friends. And I get why someone would just be like, Oh my God. Right. But until 
you have your Fatima experience, or until, like, something like that happens to you, you wouldn't know to take it very seriously just on the weight of these kinds of conversations. You yeah. Know? Well, to bring it back to something you said earlier, where you said, you know, your your initiation into Osha saved mm. your life. Yeah. And I think it's like that similar, again, in, not that I am a Jungian, but Jung says it takes spirit to cure spirit. And I, I feel that. And it's not just about alcohol. It's about yeah. like, I do need to believe in something and work with something and and have a, a what I would call like a holy relationship with something. And just because my I have too many air signs in my birth chart and I want to overanalyze everything to the point that I can't decide what's real and what's <laughs> not, that shouldn't stop me from experiencing the mystical or the spiritual yeah. and to say that I need to know with certainty what it is before I can say, you know, I want to shine light with you. Yeah. Then I'm doing myself a disservice and I'm not allowing myself to have any real healing. Agreed. I, 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 yeah, I, I absolutely agree. I think um, you have to strike out for those things anyway. And to some degree, you're not going to know. You're going to go in with a level of uncertainty and you're going to deal with the consequences. And there may be consequences the more experimental you are. Uh, it doesn't. You've got to start somewhere. And I, I think if we go back to a, a sort of scientific outlook again, just for the ability to just 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 to start somewhere, I guess. What do you often do before you you come up with a hypothesis? Like usually you do like a literature review, right? So a lot of us like maybe pick up a series of texts from multiple backgrounds. And then at some point, start to go, after a while, I have an idea of what I'd like to try. On the other hand, I think there are just as many magicians that find a ritual for the first time, and they just do it, having not read anything whatsoever. Something weird enough happens that they get dedicated to continually doing those rituals. Um, but I, w I guess, <laughs> while both of those have merit in one way or the other, I would propose striking a balance and saying, do your literature review, do these experiments, start to come up with... Uh, models for yourself be skeptical of those models you know yeah. and uh move forward and then talk to other people that have been doing it forever you know what i mean i don't i don't think we need to be skeptical of the idea that people who've been doing something for 40 years probably have something to say that's the whole reason of getting involved in these kinds of groups that we were talking about because there is an accumulated wisdom both of of a positive wisdom and as well as mistakes Saying, well, like, look, if you drink that tea, I swear to God, you're going to get ataxia. Like, it's going to happen. You know, you're going to be shivering on the floor. Like, cut your dosage by half. You know, things yeah. like that. And I, I think that may even be true with, you know, working with spirits. You have magicians and, and, and the ability to say, just please exercise caution on this one because I care about you. And, uh... Yeah, a couple of good points there. So, you know, like... We've been talking about some of the discussions that happen on Twitter. Mm -hmm. One of the ones that I saw kind of popular maybe a month and a half ago was like, how important is it to read? And mm. of course, this is also a political issue because there's a lot of anti-intellectualism that I think is rightly asserted just because there is a classism issue there. Uh, and then that feeds its way into the occult, especially at least in America. 
where people don't want to have to be the most educated person in the room to practice something. And there is this like intimidation, like I didn't like school and I'm not super into reading. Do I have to be that academic to be a good magician? Or is that just like other intellectuals trying to, you know, show off or whatever? Two things that I, I feel like your comment touched on there is the one it's important to do both it's important to read as if you can if you have access just hands-on experience is usually not enough because there is so much that we can misinterpret in our own head if we don't have other people to weigh it on but if you don't feel like you want to be the most academic person in the room you don't want to read a million books find a teacher yeah find someone who has either gone through already the mistakes of certain types of experience that they can lead you away from or have read the books and are like willing to transmit that knowledge to you yeah it doesn't have to be this like you need to read every single day to be a good occultist but you also can't deny that there's too much room for misinterpretation if we're not talking about it with other people you know i think there's a, there's a lot here and if i could Hopefully I'll ruin my reputation with this very question. But, um, you know, I want to sympathize with the idea. I do sympathize with concerns about the classism of it. But also I, I see a little bit of an absurdity there as well. So it's not the book isn't what makes it sacred. Like you know, being capable of like, say, for example, you don't have access to education when it comes to literature or, you know, you weren't given access to developmental literature to speak in a certain language or whatever. At the end of the day, you're still going to be responsible somehow for getting this information before you strike out, whether it's with mountaineering or whether it's with, it doesn't matter what it is. It could be bear trapping. Like you can be mad that like, Hey, I didn't get the opportunity to have all this reading on bears and their behavior. You're going to need to get that information from somewhere. And it doesn't have to be books. A lot of these traditions are oral anyway. They're not literature traditions. You're not going to learn Kimbanda from a book. Okay? You're going to read a couple books that have some pointers and some ideas, but at the end of the day, you need to find somebody who does that to learn it. If the, you want to do it in its own name, not whatever you think it should be. So it doesn't have to be the classicism of academia and of, you know, the constant battle between these things. That might be an advantage for someone who can do that. You can you can rightly be upset that you didn't get the same opportunities that the privilege did when it comes to that education. I think that there are pros and cons of of, of being educated. Even like, I, frankly, I think sometimes people are educated to the point where they're more concerned about the battle of words with regards to sources and acceptance in the mainstream, being looked at as a thinker, and you really don't have time to do the thousands of hours of baths and plant hunting, and or some of the more extreme stuff that I guarantee you these people are doing. Oh, yeah. Uh, that really getting your hands dirty in some of it. And some of it you learn, you know, kinesthetically. Personally, like, if I want to know something... Well, I do, I do believe in a literature review. I do think that's helpful. Kinesthetic learning solidifies it for me much better. So really what I would say, my answer to everyone on that is 
is if we respect modal learning, the fact that not everyone learns by the same mode for whatever reason, whether it's a neurotype, whether it's um, privilege or, you know, disadvantages, whatever the reason is, look in, at yourself and say, what is what are my opportunities? What's my best mode of learning? Maybe even go to someone to say, hey, can I test on my mode of learning or, you know, do whatever it is you can do to find out that self-knowledge and then apply like, OK, I need this information. Where do I get it? I could do it all by experiment in my bedroom and learn the hard way. You could do that. Or you could say, I know that someone teaches in this method. I'm a great auditory learner. I'm going to go challenge myself to learn this in, a, in an oral tradition or whatever it might be. So I think if we just respect the different ways in which we learn, everyone can find their own excellence somewhere. So I love that answer. Yeah, that that is not controversial. You won points from me for that. All right. Well, do you have any last words you you think you might want to leave the audience with on the topics at hand? For me, no. I guess I just, you know, I just maintain curiosity. I'm curious about the way that people are uh, approaching their practices and the experiences they had. And I'm, I'm really looking forward to see what everyone has to say about, you know, this material and their perspectives, you know. I'm not trying to assert that I'm no expert in anything as far as I'm concerned, but I, I'm, I, I'm very interested in, in, in how people are striking out in other communities and places I don't have access to. So I hope we get to hear a little bit about that. Yeah, definitely. Though, So just so everyone knows, there is on the Anchor site where the podcast is hosted on, you can send me comments and questions in the form of audio, I don't, ha I'm probably not going to make a episode with them, but feel free to send your question, comments, or concerns. I can share them with Josh or just, you know, if you don't want me to, that's fine too, whatever. <laughs> just let me know. And um, yeah, this was great. Thanks again. My pleasure. Thank you for having me.